feeling the excitement for the float conference? I am because I just had a amazing conversation with now Dr. Flux, which was as always incredibly insightful, very personal and super exciting to dive into brain science. So please join us today. And of course, join us for the float conference, August 18th through the 20th. We're less than a month out. Definitely get your tickets and we'll see you out there. Dr. Flux and I will both be there to give hugs and talk float. And I guess in Dr. Flux's case, talk float science and brain science, of course. So please join us for this episode. Absolutely engaging, personal, very cool episode and see you at the float conference. I do also want to give a shout out to Helmbot. Do you accept tips at your float center? Do you want to accept tips at your float center? Now Helmbot not only allows you to add tips on, but it allows you to customize the options so that the customer doesn't have to do any math and they can just click a percentage and uh, they're, they're good to go. And it's just one more thing that Helmbot is doing. It's going to make your life easier if you own Helmbot already. If you don't, if you're not already signed up, then go to helmbot.com and check out what they have to offer. You're going to be able to schedule your float tanks, schedule your employees, your staff. You're going to be able to keep an entire running logbook discussion. It's very rare. All of your employees are going to be in the same space at the same time. So it's as if they are able to. They're able to have an ongoing conversation as well as a float manual in there, um, keeping the metrics for your float tanks. It's an incredible piece of software, highly recommended. And it's not just for float tanks. It's if you have yoga classes, LMTs who are getting tips, for example, um, it's all accessible, all there for you. Again, go to helmbot.com to check them out. Also, the FTA has been working hard, really excited about the FTA. Always doing webinars, roundtables. There's just one on having first-time guests and how to connect with them after the float as well. And uh, that is now online. You can check that out. So it's even if you're not able to make it, which is always the best, right? To be able to get there, ask questions, have an engaging conversation. But if you're not able to, the information isn't gone. If you're a member, you have access to all the previous webinars, all the previous roundtables. It's fantastic. Also, the float conference coming up, the FTA is a part of it as well. Of course, they're going to be there. But also, um, Saturday night, if you're part of the FTA, there's an FTA members only mixer. So that's going to be really fun. So join the party, be part of that. And really excited. It's been going on for, gosh, I, I don't know how long, but it feels like an eternity. But uh, the microbiology project for the FTA uh, is actually going to be presented for everybody by Dr. Roy Vore. So I'm really excited about that. Uh, this is information all of us are going to want to be there for. So I'll be there for that. And excited to view the results for the first time with the rest of you. So wahoo, super exciting. I should also mention that they are now accepting applicants to join the board for the FTA. So if you want to make a difference for your community, Community, go to flotation.org and go ahead and apply. Go ahead and check it out. Sign up if you're not part of the email blast. Otherwise, if you are, there's a link in the email. But uh, yeah, check it out and uh, again, make a difference for the community. Super cool. And uh, yeah, I guess that's about it, right? Let's go ahead and start the pod. back to another episode of Art of the Float, where float centers thrive. I'm Dylan. I own the float shop in Portland, Oregon. It's just me hosting today, and I am so lucky to have the infamous, famous, the incredible Dr. Oh, God, am I infamous? <laughs> mm, depends who you ask. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> Dr. Flux is with us today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Dylan. It's a pleasure. It, absolutely. All on this side as well. Um, I'm really happy to have a just one-on-one -on -one chat with you today um, leading up to the Flow Conference. Flux will be talking at the Flow Conference, and uh, we'll get to that in a little bit here. But 
For anybody, if it's possible that somebody doesn't know who Dr. Flux is, can you talk a little bit about how you are associated with and a, and a part of the float industry? Yeah. So when I started grad school, which was, oh God, um, a lot of years ago now, <laughs> uh, I, uh, I had a crazy thing in grad school happen where I didn't have a project and didn't have a mentor all of a sudden in my first year. And I met uh, this amazing scientist named Dr. Chris Lowry, who became my uh, PhD advisor, and I needed a project to do over the summer. And so he was like, well, I'm doing this collaboration with this guy named Dr. Justin Feinstein, and uh, we need someone to analyze a bunch of float data, and uh, can you do that? And I was like, okay, sure. And they kind of gave me this project that they thought was going to take me all summer, and I ended up doing it in a weekend. <laughs> and and they were like, wait a second, wait a second, who, who are you? Yeah. <laughs> I was just like, I don't know. Uh, I, I, a guy who likes statistics? Um and it wouldn't be for another year when I would go to my first float conference. So that was 2017. And then 2018, I went to my first float conference. And um, that I so I, I'm a graphic designer and an illustrator and an artist. I mean, I if you really ask me like the, who I am, I, I tend to say artist before I say scientist. Um, but uh, I, I made this very engaging a cartoon presentation about floating and the union system uh and the entire float community uh took me in uh as its own <laughs> and and i and and every year since i have come back and given a a crazy colorful fun talk about science and floating um and uh yeah and 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 now now i'm a now i'm a float person uh, a beloved I, I float person. I have my PhD yeah. now. I, yeah. I uh, finished. I, I defended my dissertation in 2021. I finished my clinical internship in 2022. Uh, I am officially Dr. Flux now, uh, and uh, yeah, this will this will be my second my second conference officially as Dr. Flux. So that's that's exciting. Um, I, I think it was during your defense. I got to listen in on that, right? That was open for people mm -hmm. to listen to. Yeah. And yeah, everybody, I, everybody listened. I, I was, uh, I was fixing a float tank while that was going on. It was, it was very, um, apropos uh, to, um, floating and, and the community and everything. I was like, yep, this, this makes sense. Of course, a float tank is down and I'm, I'm wrenching on it here. Um, big congratulations again. I know, I know we've talked about that in the past. And by the way, um, to learn more about flux and flux's history, becoming a doctor and just personal history, life history, everything has been covered on previous episodes. I highly recommend them. I think they're some of the most entertaining <laughs> talks we've had. Um, and which is kind of fun is, I mean, we're so float centric uh, that it is kind of fun that we get to um, explore other topics with with uh, Dr. Flux as well. So um, check out those really entertaining episodes. <clears throat> but um, today I would love to talk a little bit more about, I mean, of course, again, um, we'll, we'll talk about your your talk, but what's been going on with your life between the the last time we recorded? I think you, um, I think you, you still said there was some caveat where you weren't quite quite doctor yet, and um, and I understand you were being sensitive about that and, and professional, but in in all of our minds, you definitely were Doctor Flux right then, and uh, maybe it was like another month or two. But between then and now, um, what's been going on with your life, and and how are you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah oh man how am i so this all kind of feeds into the talk that i'm giving this year oh wow <laughs> so this great is where, wow this is a story man this is this is where <laughs> i told you i was like do you want to get weird on this podcast and i um, said yes so, <laughs> yeah and you said yes so so here we are so um yeah so like i don't know i definitely had 
quite the identity crisis when I finished my PhD. Um, because like I said before, you know, I really identify more as an artist than I do as a scientist. I mean, I am a scientist, obviously. Like, I have a double PhD in neuroscience and clinical psychology. That's that's like not really in question here. But like, <laughs> but, you know, I finished grad school and I was just like, I don't want to go into academia. I don't, you know, I think I, I spent a year as a clinical psychologist working with indigenous populations in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And that was one of the biggest privileges I ever could have had. Mm. But it really also taught me that like, being a clinician is also not really something that makes sense for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I think with my own mental health, which I'll, I'll actually get to, um, you know, it was just, it was, it was a lot. I think taking care of other people and having to take care of myself, um, especially in the populations that I'd want to work with, because if I were to be a clinician, I wouldn't want to just be like helping rich people with depression. Not, mm-hmm. I mean, rich people with depression still need help, but like, you know, I think that I would want to be working in the communities that I was working with in, you know, community mental health, working, you know, continuing to work with indigenous populations. Mm-hmm. Um, and that work is hard. Um, and I, I just, yeah, I, I don't know if I have the fortitude for that. Um, I, you know, I think that like what I really learned from that experience was like, I don't know, these people deserve, deserve help. And I don't know if I'm the person to do it. And I think if that was a really, really hard choice to make to kind of recognize your own limitations and be like, Oh, like, this is really not like, I mean, I did a good job. I was, I mean, I had many, like I had several supervisors when I decided to take a step away from being a clinician, they were just like, you know, you could do this. And it was a recognition where I could do it, but I don't know what my life would be if I did it because Mm -hmm. I realized that like my entire life would be about supporting myself in that job. Um, I would have no extra bandwidth for Uh anything. It would all be like helping people and then like, you know, helping myself to help other people. Right. And, um, and, and even at that, like, I think I would have get, I would have gotten burned out like within two to three years. Like it's just because I mean, you know, my father died while I was in Tulsa, Oklahoma mm-hmm. and it triggered, you know, I, I, uh, which I'm going to, I'll talk a little bit about, but like my mental health isn't a secret, especially now that I'm not a clinician, but like, you know, I have, I have a diagnosis of bipolar disorder. My lived experience with mental health is like, all over the place. But, you know, um, when my father died, it triggered a very severe mood episode and I was able to continue working through it. But like the price that I had to pay to continue working through it was everything, right? Like my entire life just turned into survival and helping my patients. And I was just like, I, I can't do this. Um, so I had quite an identity crisis after grad school. Um, because I'm just like, okay, I just spent six years of my entire life um, preparing myself for like several careers that I don't really want now. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, and on top of that, you know, like I just, I, I think my, my mental health was just in quite a state that was, that was a lot. And I, and I got to this point where I was just like, okay, we have to, it, it is time to redefine who you are in your life. Like you, you, you need another reboot. And um, I was telling someone about this at the time and they were like, oh, is that like one of those seven year cycles? And I was like, no, it's not. And then I looked back at my life and I was like, oh, wait a second. I'm trying to do this every seven years. Because I? <laughs> I, so I was just, yeah, I was like, damn it. I was like, so, you know, when I was, um, 
I mean, there are there are corollaries at seven and 14, but then at age 21 was the year that I left the Jehovah's Witnesses and I had to mm. completely redefine my entire life and figure out how to, you know, who I was going to be after that. And then at age 28 was when I decided that I was going to go to grad school. And like the thing was, mm. is that I had gone, I had already been in a PhD program before that. Like when I, when I left the Jehovah's Witnesses, I was like, I'm going to be a scientist. I'm going to move to New York. And I went to NYU and I was in a, P, a neuroscience PhD program at NYU. And then that ended um, with one of the top, like most disastrous mood episodes of my life. Oh, wow. I never finished the PhD. I mm -hmm. ended up, I barely made it out alive. It was, that's a whole story. And um, so it, at age 28, when I decided that I was going to go back to grad school, um, I was like, you cannot do that again. Like, if you're going to do grad school again this time, you have to figure out how to manage your mental health and who you are and your life so that you don't have an utter complete collapse. Right. And um, and so age 28 was like this big year of me, like diving deep into like who I am and um, also like how I manage my own mind in ways that that I really firmed up and, and made so that I was able to then go on to CU Boulder and and do a PhD program and, and, and finish, you know, a double PhD program with, with, with whatever, you know, grace and aplomb. I don't know. Um, but, Absolutely. um, so, uh, so this time around, I was just like, okay, like, who are you? And like, what are you, what are you doing in this world? <laughs> and I feel like we don't always ask ourselves that question enough. And, and it kind of really started out around the question of my mental health, which was because um, one of the things that I had done in the background of all this, like I said, I have a bipolar diagnosis, but like my lived experience is, is pure chaos. And it's taken me many years to really understand the way that my mood works. Hmm. Um, and to do so, I, I engaged in a seven year self-study. So between 2012 and 2019, um, I tracked um, my mood and behavior yes. every single day. I think I've talked about this before. Yes. Um, and, uh, you know, by, by the final year, I was tracking like 125 different items every day. And uh, I have my tattoo. This tattoo is, is a commemoration of each year. So the width of each band corresponds to the number of items that I tracked each oh year. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Okay. <laughs> it, it grew. Um, it grew. <laughs> um, and, I can uh, barely track my caloric intake daily, let alone I, that. That's incredible. Caloric intake was there. I mean, the, past, the last like couple of years had caloric intake. I mean, I tracked everything. I mean, I tracked every single possible mood you could think of. Exercise, sleep, medications, drugs, like everything. It's almost was, like you're into statistics. In it's, it, uh, yeah, I know, right? Like, who, who Interesting. So, um, so a lot of this was like, well, okay, so you've done all this work. And I, and I stopped in 2019. And I said, well, maybe the first thing to do is to really integrate that work into the way that you conceptualize yourself. Um, and that was something that I had never done before, because when I did a lot of higher level statistics, I actually started to identify some really interesting patterns. Hmm. Um, and, and so I decided, well, you know what, I'm going to read a, like, I'm going to read up on what the current neuroscience prevailing theory is on emotion. And um, and see what that has to say and how that aligns with the work that I've done. So I read, it's a popular book, but it's very intensely neuroscience. Um, it's, it's called How Emotions Are Made. Um, and it is written by Dr. Lisa Feldman Barrett. Um, and she is one of the prevailing scholars on uh, neuroscience of emotions uh, today. 
And um, she has innovated the constructed theory of human emotion. And when I started reading this book, um, I realized that the work that I had done had like by convergent evolution completely paralleled all of her work. Oh, interesting. Um, which is really, I mean, I, I could talk about this for a while. I won't get into it for time, but like basically like the idea of how emotions are constructed, emotions are made up of multiple components. We don't really think about them this way, but they are actually constructions. They're made up of a homeostatic driver, uh, an affect based system, and then a context based system. And the affect system was literally something that I statistically deduced from my own data on myself oh my god um, okay so like i was reading this this book and i'm just like holy shit yes. like this is this is like this is literally how i conceptualize my mind and i did it in parallel to this <laughs> like really amazing scholar and um and so i was like okay we're gonna like rewrite the like subroutines of your brain so that they align with this entire neuroscience theory to help to align the way that I manage my mental health and my life. But then as I kept reading the book, I started to realize that this wasn't just like a theory of emotion. This is actually a theory of reality. Um, and that, that would take a lot longer to explain. Uh, but basically, uh, it's a big bomb to drop. I was, yeah. <laughs> um, I, I realized that like this, this like, you know, seven year cycle in my life wasn't just about like rewriting the way that I engage with my world and, and, and my emotions. It's literally going to be rewriting the code of how I perceive reality itself. And, and um, so when you said it was, um, you said reality, you didn't see, you didn't say perceived reality the first time. Are you talking about perceived, right, perceived reality? reality. The whole time? I'm talking about yeah. perceived reality. Right. Mm, I mean, like, okay. I, I don't know. From my perspective, we can never know what reality is. Like reality right, is always yeah. seen through a lens darkly. Like we, we are using uh, a dirty lens through our senses to understand reality so like what is reality who knows but like we perceive reality and therefore we construct our reality and therefore the way that we construct our reality is something that we um have some level of control over all right um and so uh i started to go into the techniques that i have developed over years which is like i I don't know. Have I talked about how I can induce psychedelic experiences without psychedelics before on the show? Was that in the last I show? I feel like I would remember that. <laughs> it's possible. That, but uh, no, I don't think so. Please. Uh, yeah. So I learned that I could do this somewhere around 2012. What? Was this through breathing technique? No, no. This is no, I actually okay. use. Um, so it's it's this weird hack that occurs through um, the, the. Have you ever heard of frisian? So frisian so. is like the 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 technical term for like goosebumps that you hear when you hear music. You feel when you hear music, like okay. you know that oh, feeling cool. when you yes. like are really into music and like you like really get into it. I so, do. Like I really do. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I feel like most of us in this community know exactly what nice. that is. Yeah. Um, so sometime around 2010, I learned that I could hack it, and I could basically, when I have that state, push myself through it and take myself into a psychedelic state. Um, and huh. I, when I, when I figured this out back in 2000, I, I, I learned about it. I first started experiencing it in 2010 In 2012, I, I realized that it was like a backdoor into my mind. Um, and I started hmm. using it for information processing. Um, so like I realized that I could like go into the state and have access to like all of this other information in my brain that I didn't realize was in there, like memories, data, and I could use that 
that state as like a hyper processing state. Um, but the problem with that was that I started using it all the time. And it basically broke my brain and triggered one of the worst mood episodes of my life. Oh, and wow. then I ended up in a psych ward for a week. <laughs> okay. And, and would you attribute that like similarly to as if, as if you were doing a bunch of psychedelics over and over again or any kind of drug we're use getting, over and over again? We are actually getting to this, but yes. Okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> then um, I'll, I'll just listen. <laughs> Great. <laughs> yeah. So, well, because this all ties into my talk for the float set. All right. Beautiful. Um, so... So I, uh, you know, so basically 2012, I, I, I pushed this to its boundaries. I learned the limits and mm. I pushed past them. I wound up in a psych mm. ward twice that year. It was not good. Um, and I took a step back. And then over the years since 2012 up until now, I use it very, I don't know. It's like a touch and go thing. Like I'll go into it. I'll do a couple shifts. I'll move back out of it. Um, because the thing that it's really helped me to realize, um, and especially this past year, is that like psychedelics are, are really, you know, reality construct rearrangers. They allow us to utilize these substances to reorganize our perception of our world. And that can happen, you know, for for the positive or that can happen for the negative and, and, and more on the negative in a little bit. But we're still on the positive right now. Sure. Um, so I started really, you know, I've been using these techniques for a while now, like, um, it's almost like I'm, I, you know, I never refer to myself as a psychonaut because I don't use psychedelics that frequently, but like I do uh, use this technique fairly frequently. So I've yeah. become kind of like a, a micro psychonaut. I don't know what you want to <laughs> call it. Um, but so over the course of the month of December, I started doing all of these like micro architectural changes to my perception of reality. And so like I would dive into my psyche, I would like, basically pulse this ability and I would start to rearrange things so that they started to align with this basis for this constructed theory of reality. That is, you know, the underlying concept for this book, how, uh, how emotions are made. Okay. Um, and, uh, wow. Um, that triggered the most fundamental shift in my perception that I have ever experienced in my life. Um, and uh, some for the amazing and, and some mm. for the worse. And I think that that's like this journey was again, another kind of cautionary tale about, you know, shifting our perception of reality um, around how in many ways, there's a lot of positive that can come from that. Like I think from December through December and January, I was just like journaling constantly as like my thought patterns were just starting to shift in ways that were making the world make sense in different ways. That, that was amazing. Um, and then like, as we kept going, like it just started to go off the rails. <laughs> um, and like by in, in what way, I'm sorry. Well, so this whole experience has helped me to understand psychosis a lot better. Um, one way to think about psychosis, and I don't say this as a clinician, I say this as myself, just so that we can differentiate. But okay. like, as someone who has experienced psychosis and has been trying to understand what it is, um, psychosis in some ways is kind of like when your construct of reality has just gone off the rails. Um, where you, you know, I think about 
the way that we perceive reality as a system, as a systematic system of weights on how we weight sensory information. Um, and like, that's, we only have a half hour, so I don't know if I'll get into that, <laughs> but buy me a drink and I'll talk about that at the conference. Perfect. But, right. uh, <laughs> but like, you know, basically, you know, for me, my experience of psychosis is when I start weighting sensory information in ways that like does not align with my own survival or with the reality that I'm trying to live with. Um, and so what that can, it's kind of hard to describe, really explain really. Is, is there an example you can use to Okay, so <laughs> we can talk about when this really went off the rails. Uh, I was I was in LA and I uh, did a weed edible, and I had a psychotic break, uh, and I thought that I was the Antichrist for wow. uh, a couple of days. Um, oh wow! My, my okay. <laughs> now my saving grace from this was that it was so textbook that there was a part of my mind that was like, no, everybody thinks they're the Antichrist when they have a psychotic break. Like, you oh, are experiencing you, something you that armed. is probably not, like, real. And so for about five days, I had to hold, like, two realities in my hands. Uh -huh. And one was, like, that I was the Antichrist. And the other was, like, you're probably not the Antichrist. You have to figure <laughs> out how to make sure that you know that you're not the Antichrist. Um, and, like, one of the, like, I don't I could talk about this forever. Again, we don't have a lot of time. But, like, in terms of, like, waiting information, is it's just, like, if you're waiting thoughts or imagined thoughts more heavily than you're waiting sensory information that you're experiencing with your eyes, nose, you know, hands, yeah. then you can create a reality that okay. feels very real, but is in fact based more on fantasy than it is actually based off of sensory information and, that's coming in through your eyes. And, and we all do that, right? Just if we're just in our own thoughts and we're just brooding and then we yep. create this dark tale of what someone thinks of us, of our job, what, whatever it is, we, we do this all the time. To, to a lesser extent than the, yeah. the story you're telling, which which is also interesting because in those situations, personally, I also need to arm myself with, wait, do I have anything that's actually telling me this is true? Did I get enough sleep? You know, just the basic things mm -hmm. of, of mood. Um, but please continue. Yeah. And so for me, I really started realizing, like, I mean, I obviously already have, I call it a squishy brain, right? Like, I know I have a squishy brain, right? <laughs> and I I am more... Um, I am basically more uh, susceptible to things like this. Hmm. And so what I had done through the way that I had started to change my perception of reality was I had basically taken down some of the safeguards that like hold my brain together and made my brain more squishy. So that then when I did have an experience that can induce psychosis in which having a weed edible that someone had made themselves that I had no idea how much THC oh, was in, wow. right? Okay. Like I was more susceptible to having an experience that was a complete break with reality. Mm -hmm. And right. this really started getting me thinking about psychedelics and how we use them and the dangers of these experiences along with the benefits, right? Because when you're deconstructing and reconstructing your reality, you can do amazing things you can help people get over depression. You can help people change their minds. You can help create, you can help reduce any number of problems because everything is about our perception. And if you have the tools to alter perception, you can change anything. But 
you can also change anything, which means that you can also go in the other direction. And for people, especially people with vulnerabilities like me, you can create circumstances in which people are being exposed to a greater number of harms. Um, and so I started to really dive into this. Um, psychedelics are something that are important to me, obviously. I mean, they're also something that I think from the story, it is evident that I need to be very careful with. Um, and I think that both can be true, right? Um, I think that it's it's really hard because there's a lot of people in the camp where are just like, no, these are some of the safest substances out there. Like, everybody can do this. These are great. Everyone should be dropping acid all the time. And then you have the other people who are like, no, people with mental health problems should never do such a psychedelic. Like, this is horrible. And it's just like, again, this is me speaking as me, not as a clinician anymore because I'm not okay. licensed anyway. But just like as me, you know, like, it's it's, I think it's a lot more nuanced. And I think, but I also think that we need a lot more caution. And so I got to Together with a friend of mine. Um, his name's Alex Belzer. Um, he's a, a big name in, in queer psychedelics. He actually just edited a book called Queering Psychedelic, which is out now. Uh, and uh, I worked with him at Cybin. Uh, we worked at a, a psychedelic uh, startup for a while, uh, helping to design clinical trials and, and work like that. And so I had coffee with him one day in March, and we were just talking about this stuff. And um, and he looks at me and he's just like, Flux, he's like, I feel like we're giving people nuclear bombs for their brains. Huh. And he's like, and I don't know what to do about it. And I looked at him and I said, Alex, you know, I don't think it's that we're giving people nuclear bombs. I think it's that psychedelics are basically like plutonium. And I was like, and what can you do with plutonium? Plutonium can be used to create a nuclear reactor that like powers a nuclear power plant that like powers an entire city with like fairly clean burning energy. Or it can be used to create a nuclear bomb. And I was like, we need to be really careful about the way that we are delivering these substances and encouraging their use um, so that we're not creating nuclear bombs and are instead creating nuclear power plants. And, um, and so around that time, I got a call, not a call, no, I had met a guy, that was it. I'd met this guy at a party in December. His name was Tristan Bennett. Um, and he, he was in, he is in the, or no, I think he graduated. He was in the um, social worker program at NYU and is very into psychedelics. And he, uh, we, we had like a good networking talk. And then out of nowhere, I just texted him because I hadn't talked to him in a couple months. And I was like, hey, just reaching out, like, how are you? And he messaged me back and he was just like, I'm kind of going through it right now. And I was like, oh, do you need like some space to talk about something? And he, he tells me this story of just like horrific sexual abuse that happens in um, the psychedelic world. Oh, wow. um, and uh, I won't get into the details of it, but it was shocking. And, uh, and he was just like, I don't really know what to do about this. And I was, I mean, it messed me up when he told me this story. It was sure. really bad. Yeah. And I was just like, can you, like, I was like, give me a minute. And then I, like, I kind of came back and I was just like, hey, can I just like blow up your phone for a bit? And he was like, well, just send me an email. So I sent him this email that's like this 10 paragraph takedown about like why this was not appropriate and like why we need strong ethics around hmm. um, sexual contact in the context of psychedelic healing. And Immediately afterward, he was like, well, you give the keynote at our conference. <laughs> and, I like, and I was like, I was like, okay. Um, and so uh, on <laughs> April 22nd, I give this keynote about um, the, the ethics of 
sex and its involvement with psychedelic healing circles uh, in in uh, in the context of therapy. And it was very well received. Um, and it's just, you know, I started really getting hardcore into ethics and into like, how, what are we doing here? And it's like, because there are a lot of ways as, as I've started diving into this, that I'm realizing that this is the way that psychedelics are getting popularized, not just popularized, but legalized and legislated in our country mm-hmm. is, is starting to set us up for some really scary failure. And so that talk that I gave in April got me connected with the state of Colorado. And I've been doing some like very light consulting work with them. There's like hundreds of people on this. So it's not like I'm doing a whole lot, but like I've been doing some light consulting work around the legislature that they, you know, they passed. Right. So Colorado passed this, this, um, it's basically like a plant medicine act and it, it does two things. And these two things are the scary part. Um, one is it legalizes the use of plant medicine, psilocybin in this case, in the treatment of treatment resistant depression and PTSD in government run healing centers. But then it also does this in parallel with decriminalization. Um, now, the, I'll talk about why this makes me nervous. Um, if, if I had had my way in the way that all of the, the, the legalization stuff in this country had gone, it would have been just decriminalization. It would not have been legitimizing it in parallel with mental health treatments. Because it's not that I don't think that psychedelics can't be solid treatments for mental health. It's that it, it takes a really delicate touch, especially with individuals like me who are, you know, have a mind that is squishy. Um, and the dangers are, you know, the psychotic breaks and, and the thinking that we're the Antichrist. And, and I'll tell you that not everyone who has this experience is going to have the clinical training that I had that allowed me to walk my way back from thinking that I was the Antichrist. And, and, um, and so it, even if it's in a government facility, if, it, you know, somebody who's... That's not what I'm worried it. about. What I'm worried about <laughs> is that the government facility is for two use cases, treatment-resistant depression and PTSD. What about all of the people who now hear that these substances are wonder drugs for mental health who either cannot access government facilities, cannot access people to guide them, but it's happening in parallel with decriminalization, which means that they're going to have access to them through a gray market, which which which, uh, is already something I hear um, from, you know, customers at the, at the shop. This is something I hear. I know there are podcasts talking about it and and it does just seem like green light. We're on, we're good to go. Yeah. We're on, we're good to go. So I take a very harm reduction approach to this, right? Like I'm not, I'm not trying to be the next war on drugs. Um, I don't think that that would work. Uh, you know, <laughs> I think that that's a bad idea. Happy to so, hear that. <laughs> <laughs> so then the question is, if we're existing in this framework and we suddenly have a lot of people who want to do psychedelics, mm-hmm. many of whom are at risk for potentially dangerous experiences, Mm -hmm. how do we design a system that allows them to do psychedelics in a way that minimizes the negative impact of potentially unraveling their minds? And so I designed a system. (laughs) Please allow... Oh, is this something you're going to share today or is this a teaser for the Flow Conference? I'd love to hear. This is what I'll be talking about at the Flow Conference. All right, all right, cool. Um, So I basically said, how would you do this? And I got inspiration from several different places. Um, The first was game mechanics. Um, 
because not that I wanted to turn doing psychedelics into a game, because I think that that's probably I, that doesn't seem like a good idea to me. <laughs> but um, using the mechanics of games to engineer an experience that minimizes the negative impact of psychedelics. Mm. Now, that was something that really interested me. Um, and then I got inspiration from another place that is really was completely unlikely and came out of left field. AA. Hmm. Um, Alcoholics Anonymous is one of the most interesting sets of mental programming in existence in that it basically, it's not for everyone, right? I'm not, I'm not an AA evangelist, but like when I, I started talking to someone in AA who was very knowledgeable about the system and he let me ask him questions for like hours and hours. (laughs) And I, I realized I was like, Oh, this is basically the 12 steps are mental programming. They're a way to create a mentality that is resistant to addiction. And it, mm-hmm. it's one of the reasons why AA and, and other, you know, 12-step programs have been so effective is because they use game mechanics in a very mm-hmm. specific way to create a mental environment that is less uh, susceptible to addiction. Um, now, it doesn't work for everyone. Uh, it, it is kind of weird, which I will give it, but it's also highly effective for the people that it works for. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I wanted to create a system that was not AA, <laughs> but uh, that used kind of mechanics to that was basically built around a, a minimal step system that people could utilize to engage with psychedelics in ways that would minimize the potential for a negative outcome, while also facilitating growth and change in ways that was approachable. And this is for any state where it's decriminalized, essentially, or legalized to self-administer? It's it's not for psychedelics. It's for any altered state. It is for any altered state of consciousness, which is why I realized that it could be just as easily applied to floating. Great. And we're there. Great. (laughs) (laughs) And so I decided to talk about that this year at the Float Conference. Cool. And then how are you planning on releasing this system? Oh, it's just a series of steps in the same way that, you know, you know, AA is 12 steps. Um, The the story of AA is really interesting and I've gotten a lot from it in that AA actually started in the 30s. And when it was first released, just as the initial steps, it went off the rails. Um, it was used to like create cults, like there were like oh. um, prohibition cults. Um, it was used for people to um, like just extort people and abuse people. It like went off the rails. And so in the 50s, they kept the 12 steps, but they added the 12 concepts and the 12 traditions. And the interesting thing about the 12 concepts and the 12 traditions is that they are basically the guide rails that brought the 12 steps back in line so that it wouldn't go off the rails in the way that it did in the 30s and 40s. And so when I was designing this system, I looked a lot at how the 12 steps was complemented by the 12 concepts and the 12 traditions in the way that it basically attenuated the mental programming so that it wouldn't go off the rails. So what I've essentially made is just a, currently it's just a 10 step system. But the mechanics of that system have been exquisitely designed and you can't tell because it's just, it just looks like it's just basic, you know, it's just words, right? You're just following, you're just following guidelines. Um, It needs, I mean, it needs, I need to actually um, use it more. Like I've done it, I've used it with a couple people. It needs to be like Mm. um, refined, Uh, but I want to 
basically uh, kind of use the float community potentially. I want to offer it to the float community and be like, hey, this is still cooking. But like, mm-hmm. what do you think? Like, and get feedback and see cool. what people, right. whether people like it. Um, because it's it's basically a system for journeying. And that journeying can happen with a psychedelic or it can happen through a drum circle or it can happen in a float tank or it can happen with holotropic breath work. Um, it's, you know, I, I'm tentatively calling it journey space. I don't know if I like that name yet, but that's kind of, that's what it's called currently. Okay. Um, but it's, it's just about how do you journey in a way that minimizes the potential for harm. Fascinating. I love that. I, I'm uh, so excited to hear about that. Um, in person, my, Mom and I have a conversation, and I suppose my dad as well, uh, kind of slow and ongoing over the years of, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a fan of uh, psychedelics and kind of breaking up the mind periodically and um, taking a fresh look uh, with with psychedelics. And uh, my parents, as, as raised Buddhist, and they're still Buddhist, um, chant. And uh, my mom will say, like, I can achieve a psychedelic experience mm-hmm. through chanting. And I'm like, mom, it's not the same, you know, and she's like, well, <laughs> yeah, and now based off this conversation, I'm, I'm leaning more in her camp. Um, but uh, what I'm really curious about is to um, how these steps would apply to each of us uh, in our separate states um, and and making them positive and, and functional is really exciting to me. So um, I'm, I'm personally invested here. I'm, I'm interested. Um can I also just going back? I just want to say thanks for yeah. well, thanks for your uh, sharing and vulnerability. I, I always appreciate that so much. Um, while your story was very specific, I also just think um, so many of us are going through the the seven year or whatever the cycle truly is. <laughs> you know, the questioning of who am I? I think that's constantly going on with with so many people. And and if it's not, perhaps it should be. Um, but uh, yeah, that's something I'm. Uh, currently facing now, like I've I've wanted to be an archaeologist, I've wanted to be a teacher, I've wanted to be a business owner, or you know, float center owner, and these things are are constantly churning in my head. And the the who am I? So I just appreciate you bringing that up because I think that that strikes home for for so many of us, and must have for every single person listening, because we all came here from from a certain place of questioning. So um, I, I appreciate that. Um, let's see here. There are a few things. Um, is there? Uh, well, first of all, I. Yeah, I guess we are kind of coming to a close here. I should uh, wrap up. Is there anything else you want to share before we start wrapping up here? Uh, I feel like you've had a great I, arc of getting all the way know, to, to the float in your presentation. That was bravo. <laughs> um, I would say uh, the I am working on rebranding. Um, I think I'm going to be trying to move towards an area of content creation, book writing, stuff like that. Uh, I'm mm-hmm. working on trying to make money doing some uber driving which has been interesting uh i kind of love it i really like driving people places uh but the the thing is is that like what i really came down to if i had to figure out what my brand would be because apparently we all have to think about that but like kind of i don't like even if we don't use the word brand but what is what is what who am i i came up with the word resilience because the thing is is that like i've gone through a lot um and i keep coming back fighting and I want whatever I create and put out into the world to be about resilience. And this system is about resilience. It's how can we use a substance or use an experience that has the potential for danger and still use it in such a way that we are able to grow and to heal and to move forward. Um, And so I have a lot of stuff in the pipeline. I just am experimenting with a TikTok channel uh, about resilience. Um, I'm going to probably start Mm -hmm. moving into Instagram as well. And I have some ideas for YouTube. Um, But uh, keep an eye out 
for resilience and me. And uh, that's, uh, I think, going to be the thing for the next seven years. So we'll see what happens. All right. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Damn it. Uh, you're going to make me install TikTok on my phone? <laughs> <laughs> I don't use it. I just make content. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. It finally motivating me to do that. Um, and, and then are you going to try out threads as well? Uh, probably. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm still trying to, I mean, I, I'm, uh, yeah, it's, it's, I feel like I'm coming out of a period of a lot of unrest. Uh, that's a whole other story, but like m- the past couple months of my life have just been mentally very challenging. So, um, a lot of this has all come out of resilience in general. So uh, I'm looking forward to kind of the next arc being uh, me having a little bit more energy to work on this stuff. So got it. Cool. Um, you know, uh, several times during this conversation, I've wanted to ask, but it seemed like such a pause of the conversation I, I held off, which is, you know, um, floating, cool, research, cool, yada, 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 you as a human being, the most important thing, right? And so <laughs> when you have um, a breakdown, if you have a, a mental episode, if you're having just a, a tough time. Do you like people reaching out to you? Do you like people in the in the float community reaching out to you? Do you prefer just a core group of of friends and family? You know, can can we support you in any way? I know there's several questions there. Yeah, I mean, I I think that this question is going to be coming up a lot, especially as I make my life more public, or at least parts mm. of it more public. Um, so I have to figure out how to answer these questions. I mean, the the thing is, is that I have designed a support system. Um, you know, my, I, like, I don't know. Um, it's, it's hard to, to say exactly, but like m- my level of like mental health issues, like the fact that I am like have done this much and I'm still standing and I'm still alive is kind of like really surprising. <laughs> hmm. Um, like I have a, a very, very, very intense and challenging, mood disorder um it's you know i i could talk about this forever but the, I will, i'll just say like it's very very hard and um the way that i have kept going and stayed alive has been through having very specific people in my life with very specific instructions on very specific ways about how to support me um i think for other people it often just gets more challenging when they try <laughs> um you know like i have I have a core of maybe like five different people who all have different roles, who play different roles that are able to do things. And generally when I am collapsing, um, I have enough lead time that I'm able to get myself somewhere to get myself safe. Um, And that has happened every time so far. And I would say the past six months of my life have been probably some of the most challenging mental health months of my life. Um, And so like for me, my priorities are personal safety, my own life, um, and safety of others. So like I have so many systems in play that make sure that those things are prioritized. Um, and it's very complicated. So I would say if you want to (laughs) help, uh, just give me some grace, uh, and, uh, you know, uh, ask me if I need anything and, uh, you know, respect whatever I say. (laughs) Sure. Great response to that. Perfect. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Sounds great. All right. <sighs> Thank you for joining, Dr. Flux. Absolutely. Always a wonderful conversation. Um, as, you're, as you're talking about, while you were talking, I was like, you need a YouTube channel. You need to be writing a book. Uh, but <laughs> also just, in the works. Yeah, that's great. That's, that's perfect. And uh, you need a podcast as well. You need a way to um, 
be that sharing. That is also in the works. Great. I, I am, uh, my friend Mara. Um, so I have this famous friend or used to be famous friend. Um, do you know the movie um, Matilda? Uh-huh. Um, do you remember the actress who played Matilda? I can picture her. Yeah. 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 Her name is Mara Wilson. She's a very good friend okay. of mine. And we are nice. in the process of trying to put together a podcast oh, yay, about something. Fun. So about something. So, okay, great. So hopefully, <laughs> hopefully that'll happen soon. I'm, I'm gunning for us to make a resilience podcast where we talk about mm-hmm. this stuff because um, cool. she also Excellent. is someone who is a, uh, has a lot of challenging mental health. She has dealt with OCD. She's done public speaking mm-hmm. about it across the country. She deals with a lot of physical health issues. And so I just think it would be a really cool, cool uh thing for us to do together so we'll see what happens i love it um let me know let me know when you guys launch and uh, we'll, yeah. we'll plug it here and and uh, have both of you on that'd be fun yeah. um let's see here the float conference is august 18th through the 20th um i'll be there flux is going to be there obviously and um i think uh we're both open for hugs so come yes. say hello um apparently so if you hugs. buy if you buy Flex a drink, you get to hear even more. So <laughs> everybody <laughs> buy him a drink. reality. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, let's see. I'll be hosting a bunch of roundtables on Friday. That's going to be fun. I think Gloria is going to be doing that as well. It's going to be a good time. Um, can't wait to see everybody there. As always, I don't even know how many float conferences there. Is this 15, 14, 15, something like that? It's bananas. Um, but uh, come out, say hi. Uh, obviously, there's tons of information to learn, but the community aspect is also just the most important part to me, to me, the most important part. And and I think that's what people walk away with so much of is we're all isolated throughout the year. And this is just a great way to uh, network, team build, friends build and have connections throughout the rest of the year between float conferences that help you well thrive to lack of a better term. Um, oh, also, I should say, oh, and go to floatconference.com to get your tickets. I want to see you there. Um, how emotions are made. Um, I'll put a link uh, so you can pick that up if you like. Um, it's that a was very Lisa challenging Barrett. book to read. Okay. Really good. <laughs> good advertisement. Great. For anybody who's up for a challenge, just so you know, it'll it'll be there. Did you want to plug Queer and Psychedelics as well? Or was that a little... Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, yeah, cool. I haven't read it. I, don't, I, haven't, I have not read oh, okay. it. But I, okay. I, I respect Alex Belzer immensely. <laughs> Great. So. We're going to put it up there just so you have access to it if you want to check it out. And um, there was something... Oh, yeah. Uh, go to... <laughs> shop.artofthefloat.com uh, Flex and I did um, gosh has it been a couple of years now or is it just a year either way uh, Dr. Flux was talking about creating graphics uh, and being an artist there's some really cool um, float uh, graphic designs for t-shirts that you can check out on shop.artofthefloat look for the Flux design logo and uh, you'll know which ones are his and um, yeah uh, I, I love mine and, and uh, I'd love to see other people wearing those as well Let's see here. I think I think that's it. Uh, of course, uh, thanks to our sponsors and um, yeah, thanks to the FTA, thanks to Float Tank Solutions, and gosh, I Flex. I'll, I'll see you at the conference. I'll see everybody at the Can't conference. Wait. See everybody at the All conference. Right. Say hello. Bye, everybody. Mm-hmm.